0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. As injustices and inequalities have been exposed, there have been increasing calls to correct the criminal justice system in our prisons. What might Christians have to say to minister to those in prison? What's our calling toward and for the incarcerated? At Evangelicals for Life, Stephen Harris moderated a panel with Tibidi Anyabwile, Heather Rice and Julie Warren on these very issues. Let's join their conversation now.
1: My name is Stephen Harris. I serve as a policy director with ERLC working out of the Washington, D.C. office. Uh, sitting immediately to my left uh, is Heather Rice Minus. Uh, Heather serves as vice president of government affairs at Prison Fellowship, which is the nation's largest Christian nonprofit serving prisoners, former prisoners, and their families. Uh, next to Heather, uh, Julie Warren. Uh, Julie uh, serves as the state director for Tennessee in Kentucky uh, with Right on Crime, which is a national campaign of the Texas Public Policy Foundation in partnership with the American Conservative Union Foundation and Prison Fellowship. Uh, And next to Julie uh, is Thabitian Abwile. Thabitian Abwile is writer, speaker, uh, but also pastor at Anacostia River Church in Southeast D.C. He's also my pastor, and so I want to make sure that everything I do up here is biblical um, (laughs) uh, as as we're having this conversation. Uh, But to kick us off, I, I think an important first question uh, to have on this issue uh, in this space, and I want to hear from from each of you, all. I can uh, answer in turn. Just thinking about uh, criminal justice reform. We've been talking all day about uh, a pro-life ethic and and what a pro-life ethic in the twenty first century uh, looks like. Uh, what kinds of issues uh, intersect with, Uh, the pro-life ethic, and thinking about criminal justice reform particularly, just want to hear how you all, um, as Christians, have seen the kind of theological foundations of criminal justice reform uh, speak to and be relevant to a pro-life discourse. You know, why is this an important issue for for Christians to be concerned about, who are also concerned about uh, the life issue uh, as we've known it historically?
0: I would say, Stephen, uh, working at Prison Fellowship, uh, we stress so much how in the justice system, uh, when a crime happens, it's not just a crime uh, against the state, but it's actually a crime against the person, and um, harm has been done to a victim and also to a community, oftentimes. And uh, if we look at the Bible, it's uh, it's always calling for a restorative approach uh, to that, and and that's so rooted in believing that every person involved uh, has human dignity and value, um, and so the same application of human dignity that we apply. Uh, to uh, the pro-life issue and, and believing and, and advocating for those who are on board and their dignity and value should be applied um, in so many facets of our political space, um, including uh, the criminal justice system. And we as a nation ha- are known uh, as the world's greatest incarcerator. Mm-hmm. And we should be concerned about those who are in prison, those who are accused, um, and we should want to make sure that our justice system uh, Is reflecting human dignity in that space, um, both for those who um, are there in prison and and for those who have been harmed by crime?
2: I mean, if you're a Christian, one of the basic tenets is that life is inspired and breathed by God. And we as humans have no latitude to assign a different value to human life, whether it's an unborn or whether it's an individual who is sitting in prison. We just don't have the right to do that. Um, I come from the prosecutor world. i um cut my teeth, the Department of Justice, and then was a prosecutor. And and it's easy to get angry and it's easy to get disillusioned. Mm-hmm. But the second you stop seeing that person, that defendant as a human being, is you are losing your ability to be effective. Mm-hmm. Um, if we if you if you take the value away from a defendant or an offender you can't then expect them to rehabilitate. That's, un, that's, un, that's an unreasonable expectation. And I think sometimes our um, criminal justice system has become hardened to the human dignity element of it, and that it, you lose your ability to be effective. Yeah.
3: When God the Father sends his son into the world to die for sinners, for people broken in sin, and raises him from the grave three days later for their justification. The gospel then becomes this declaration that we cannot throw away life. Mm. God's not throwing away life. God is redeeming life. God is restoring. God is um, renewing us in the image of himself through Christ. Um, And so the entire motion of Christian living ought to be redemptive. Uh, It ought to be sort of swinging toward the reclamation of life and the flourishing of life and the sense of grace's power to redeem what's been broken or marred or hurt or injured. Um, And so it just involves us in a life ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, from start to finish, mm-hmm. um, whether we think of it in terms of the image of God or think of it in terms of a restorative justice or think of it in terms of the, the gospel itself. We're life people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what we ought to be about in, in sort of every issue. Yeah, no, well,
1: that's good. Heather, I want to bring it back to you. Um, many
3: in here might be conversant with this
1: issue at the public policy level. Um, some in here, or many in here may be new to this issue. Uh, last month, uh, a bill, see it brought a smile to her face, uh, a bill called the First Step Act. Um, was signed into law. Um, many of you might have heard of it. It's a rather historic piece of le- legislation. One commentator called it a Christmas miracle. Review for us the highlights of what the First Step Act is. Give, just give us a sense of the weight of what just happened and, and what this bill does.
0: Right. Um. The First Step Act does bring a smile to my face, and I've been calling it a Christmas miracle, too. Uh, And I've had the pleasure of working with Stephen and so many other um, faith leaders and um, groups like Right on Crime um, on the Hill to push this forward for for literally over five years. Uh, And we've been working on different iterations of this bill. But the First Step Act, as it was finally passed right before Christmas break, is uh, focusing on the federal prison system, and there's about 180,000 men and women in our federal prisons today, and it tries to make sure that they're getting um, sufficient programming. We know from the Bureau of Prisons, that there are 16,000 people uh, who are incarcerated that are on a waiting list for basic literacy classes. Um, So we know that there's a demand for that. Um, Organizations like ours, Prison Fellowship, that provide programming um, want to do more there, uh, but sometimes it can be difficult to partner uh, and and provide programming. And so this would increase the amount of partnerships with, with organizations like ours and also provide some funding for some other programs to exist in the Federal Bureau of Prisons so that we're preparing people Also, people would have the opportunity um, to earn credits for completing programs and helping motivate people to get in the programming that they need so that they're ready to go home. Uh, And so people will be able to get increased phone call time or increased family time, things that we know um, as believers are so important for strengthening families. um, But also for public safety, we know that those things are actually critical to reducing the likelihood that someone will commit a new crime when they're released. Um, And then those who are testing as low risk will also get the opportunity to move to pre-release custody and home confinement um, or or, um, a halfway house um, earlier than they would have otherwise for completing those programs. And then there's also some really critical sentencing amendments that will allow for more proportional sentences uh, for people charged particularly with drug crimes in the federal system. In the federal system we've seen just really excessive uh, sentences and enhancements for sentences when it comes to drug crimes and so those are some of the the really core components of the First Step Act and uh, we were delighted um, and have had a lot of prayers going to to see this happen uh, and work with so many people who are personally impacted or have family members uh, who are incarcerated and uh, it really was a Christmas miracle.
1: Yeah, yeah. You Google First Step back. You will, you will be educated very quickly. Just a <laughs> lot of stuff on, on that amazing piece of legislation that is now uh, law. Uh, Julie, I want to bring it to you. You know, when this conversation takes place, particularly in the public policy space, it, it's subject, like many things in our day, to just a high politicization. And that conversation usually features along kind of two polarities, those who are either soft on crime or, and those who want to be tough on crime. And you, what camp are you in? Um, what do you think about that framing, and what kind of why is that the way that it's been framed, and what, what's a more helpful way to to enter into that discourse?
2: Well, I think we see those types of labels in a lot of our political discourse on a lot of different issues. You know if we slap a label on it that has negative connotations on it, we can maybe avoid a sensitive conversation because we've sort of created a stigma. Um, the idea of soft on crime is that I just write it off as you're trying to avoid a substantive conversation on the issue because mm-hmm. it's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of tough on crime, I, in my opinion, um, being tough on crime is creating less crime,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, actually reducing recidivism, um, addressing criminogenic behavior, and targeting... Um, having targeted sentences and sanctions such that they work in that defen- um, that offender's favor so they don't offend anymore. Mm-hmm. That's being tough on crime because you're going to see less crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, being tough on a criminal, which is what I think a lot of people have sort of used as being tough on crime, mm-hmm. doesn't always get you there. Now, there's going to be those... Offenders that create that that commit heinous crimes, that you know the the you know you might have to really put that person away for a long time, but most of the time we know ninety five percent of the of the folks are going to be released, um, which is why the first step act was so important. Um, however, being tough on that criminal, if that if you don't have an end game, okay, so you you really threw the hammer down on that guy, but what to, to what end? Um, you can't just warehouse this individual for an incredibly long period of time without any plan, um, failure to plan, uh, and expect a good outcome. And you feel tough on crime because you were tough on a criminal, but you didn't actually do anything to reduce crime. And we've, I mean, in, in Tennessee... We've we've done a lot of good things, and a lot of good things are coming. We're in a really good place, mm-hmm. but we're one of the highest incarcerators, mm-hmm. and we have one of the highest violent crime rates in the country. And we think we're tough on crime, and I think we've thought that about ourselves for a long time. Mm-hmm. But because we were tough on the criminal, but we weren't getting any outcomes, we didn't have an end game. Yeah. So this whole idea of soft on crime versus tough on crime, I really think is sort of a it it, it it's not really the actual conversation that we need to have.
1: Yeah, no, that's really helpful. The BD, I think, you know, when I'm having this conversation with some people who are just beginning to think about criminal justice, you know, an individual may say, you know, well, you know, crime is committed and, you know, they have to catch the one who did it and they catch the one who did it and they punish that person uh, for the crime they did. Boom, that's justice. Uh, That's the conversation. Um, For the Christian who wants to think well about criminal justice, prison ministry, all these kind of issues, what, what is the fuller picture that the Christian ought to be concerned about than just, you know, criminal, crime, punished, boom, we did it?
3: Well, I think if the Christian is thinking about this, first of all, I want to encourage them to look at the Old Testament prophets, look at Proverbs as a whole body of literature, uh, New Testament as well, recognize that the pursuit of justice is actually part of our active worship of God. Hmm. So we're not talking in partisan political terms here. We're, we're talking about as, as those who bear witness to the character of God and the work of God in the world, Mm -hmm. uh, how we pursue justice uh, is part and parcel of our discipleship. Mm -hmm. It's part and parcel of our our worship of God. For that to be true, we we then need to root this in the book. Mm -hmm. And so our notions of justice, I think, ought to be as well-rounded as the notions we find in the Bible. Mm -hmm. So that means then we've got to add to punitive justice, retribution, some other categories like restoration. So justice requires us to not only deal with the person who's been caught in some infraction, but it also call, it calls us to deal with the victim and making the victim whole. Mm-hmm. It also requires us then, biblically, to think about procedural justice, mm-hmm. the matters of process, and whether or not those things are right. And you think in, in, the, in the Bible, the metaphor of, of just scales and just weights, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. That's a procedural justice uh, kind of issue. And so we, we want to come to the book and recognize that the book has more passages that are relevant to this than just Romans 13 and the state using the sword. It has a lot of other things that uh, go into justice that have to do with how we make a whole community, an entire community, whole. Mm. Not just punish the, the, the perpetrator, but, but restore the victim to reconcile the relationship, if we can, between perpetrator and victim, where, that, where that's appropriate. And really set a standard for human flourishing yeah. instead of merely punishing a criminal. I I like that distinction uh, rather than being tough on actual crime itself and Mm -hmm. reducing crime. Mm
1: -hmm. That's helpful. Heather, we we often see each other in the advocacy space on the Hill at meetings, uh, government affairs for prison fellowship, prison fellowship, a much larger ministry. Just give us, of those of us who are not familiar with the ministry itself, the organization, a larger snapshot of the work that you all do, and perhaps ways in which they can uh, partner with prison fellowship and just be aware of uh, some of the initiatives that are going on with your with your work.
0: Yeah, so starting with with what we're already talking about, um, we're in, informed by our work as a prison ministry to advocate for justice. Uh, one place I think would be a good uh, source for you to look at is uh, a project we worked on in in partnership. Uh, with the URLC and others, uh, if you go to www.justicedeclaration.org, um, you can see a statement that lays out some of the the very conversations we're having, and you can sign there, um, and that will keep you in touch with us about other opportunities to advocate in the states um, or at the federal level. Um, so I'd encourage you to take a look at that. We also train people who are interested to even take the next level, not just be on our email list, but um, we call them justice ambassadors. Uh, we train them to, to meet with their legislators and build relationships there, host events. In their communities and talk about these issues. Um, so, so that's another opportunity. But prison fellowship is really known, um, first and foremost, as a, as a prison ministry. We have um, programming across the country in hundreds of prisons. Uh, and our, our primary program, most intensive program, is called the Academy, Uh, and uh, the Academy puts people through. It's a voluntary program. Uh, Anyone of any faith is invited to join us, Um, but we teach from a Christian worldview, and we try and address um, some of the underlying issues of of why someone's committed a crime um, and address criminogenic needs, Um, and we do that from a Christian worldview, and there's 500 hours of curriculum that go into that before someone graduates, um, and there's just such amazing stories of transformation that have come out of the academy, and we're just growing and growing in, in, in the majority of the states. Uh, we have an academy in the majority of the states now across the country, and because of the First Step Act, we're hopeful to have even more in some of the federal facilities. Another thing we do is we try and be, uh, come alongside families of the incarcerated, and one of our key programs for that is Angel Tree. Um, there's a variety of, of Angel Tree programs throughout the year. One of our keynote ones, though, is during Christmas, we provide gifts on behalf of incarcerated moms and dads who's, sign up their kids um, to get a gift from, from them. Um, and we partner with churches to go deliver those gifts on behalf of that parent with a note from their parent. Um, so Angel Tree is a great program to look into if your church is not already involved. Um, and then another thing I'll mention that I, I think is one of our, our best kept secrets at Prison Fellowship is the Wardens Exchange Program. Where We've actually, for the last five years, been involved in um, bringing in cohorts of wardens of prisons to talk about what does moral rehabilitation, what should that look like in your prison? And we invite cohorts of wardens from all over the country to participate, and they share ideas across jurisdictions. Um, we share some of our best practices that we've learned, um, and that's been a great opportunity to um, really try and bring in um, restoration inside the walls to the people who are doing it every day. Um, so those are some of our key programs.
3: Oh, that's great. As
1: we think about connecting people in the pews to the work of uh, organizations like Prison Fellowship and just being a uh, cognizant of things that different organizations are doing, the Beatty, uh, th- th- I'm sure there are many prison ministries that are represented here, but just for individuals who are thinking about perhaps getting into this, this work from the site of the local church uh, in terms of ministry to uh, people who are incarcerated, any words of advice, um, warnings, just tips on how, what, where do I start? How do we begin thinking about, okay, we want to minister to those who are in prison?
3: Amen. Praise God for folks who have that desire. I, I only want to encourage that. I think one first thing to do is just to talk with the leadership of your church. Mm-hmm. Uh, let them know that desire. Let them know that burden. Um, allow you pastors or perhaps deacons in the church to to kind of shepherd that mm-hmm. that desire with you, give you sort of the resources that are in your particular church uh, and connect you with some opportunities in your particular neighborhood. Yeah. The other thing I would say is... Um, I. I, think I did this a few Sundays several Sundays back, just asked how many folks had uh, relatives that were incarcerated or involved with the system in some way, and most hands in the church go up. right So another thing that you can do, you don't think of it necessarily as prison ministry, but just befriending the people who are affected by mm. um, yeah. incarceration and the criminal justice system in your church yeah. as brothers, sisters and Lord is significant um, um, support. And, and part of what you can do there is then to be ready along with them. To help the person who's returning to the community get on their feet, have a different community, have an alternative set of relationships to get plugged into on a sort of daily, you know, week-to-week basis. That's really important ministry as well. Uh, And then you can move out toward programmatic things, uh, whether it's, you know, a Bible study in a prison or um, some of the things that Prison Fellowship does and other other organizations do. Um, You can move out toward some of those more organized program-level ministries, but I think there's a lot to be done just by being a good brother or sister in the church with people who are affected by this issue. No,
1: that's good. That's good. I told somebody one time uh, when I was in pastoral ministry, one of the best congregations I've ever had when I preached a sermon was in prison. I mean, locked in, uh, and nobody going up and getting to the bathroom, just everybody there taking notes. I was like, I just want to camp out here. Uh, they make me feel like I'm a good preacher. Um, <laughs> Julie, want to want to want to hear more about uh, right on crime, and I know you look at things in particular to. Uh, at things at the state level, Tennessee and Kentucky. Uh, We'd love to hear about some reforms you've seen there, but just educate us on the broader work of Right on Crime and particular reforms you've seen in the states where you work.
2: Right, well, Right on Crime um, is a project of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and a lot of these reforms that we saw in the state, are seeing in the state level, really kind of started in 2007 with Texas when they were faced with an option of building $2 billion worth of new prison facilities to handle their overpopulation issue or actually, like, solve the problem. So they reinvested $241 million into diversion programs, um, into parole programs for non started thinking about non-violent versus violent offenders. Should we be treating them the same? No, we probably shouldn't. And it's been very effective. Their crime rate's gone down about 31%. Their recidivism rate's gone down in double digits. They've closed eight prisons. And um, and so these these Great results have sort of been um, duplicated in other states, and right on crime has put state directors and sort of gotten involved in other states outside of Texas. They created this national campaign. What the work of what this of the states has been really what I think helped spur on the First Step Act because a lot of the programs, the um, First Step Act, and Incorporate have been successfully implemented in the states, so um, I think that there were a lot of states that were really good role models for mm-hmm. the for the federal government. Mm-hmm. So that's what Right on Crime does, and um, we do lobby at the, uh, the federal level, but most of the work that we do are in the states, addressing the needs that those individual states um, have. But at the end of the day, it all boils down to rethinking how you look at that offender yeah. and it really does kind of boil down to that mm-hmm. um you know there might be different you know technicalities and different evidence based programs for this state over that state but really what we all need to do is rethink how we look at that criminal. Mm -hmm. And once you can kind of get lawmakers to start rethinking how they look at that individual, and then the object becomes making sure that person is successful when they reenter, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just continuing to hammer them so we look really tough on crime, Mm -hmm. you can really get a lot of really good things done. And we're seeing a lot of lawmakers on both sides of the aisle really recalibrating, and it's just... And you have seen it, too. It's, it, it, it's, it's so encouraging. Mm-hmm. And it's bipartisan. And yeah. that's wonderful. It's, like, it's, just, it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to be a part of. I'm just so honored, to be honest.
1: Yeah. But a follow-up question to that, and I know you've, you've written about this, just, just seeing the, the different areas of this issue that people are beginning to, to speak about and to do work on. Um, bail reform. Uh, and I remember kind of reading up on this and, and knowing people who were personally um, uh, just kind of going through the system and, and dealing with bail. Um, that's a, a conversation that's, that's picking up. And, I, and again, I know you've written on this. Just help us. Why would bail, something like bail that seems pretty straightforward, why is that a, a question of reform and concern these days? So
2: I'm going to take Tennessee as the first, um, as a sort of the test case, over, well over 50% of our jail population are just there on pretrial detention, which means they were, jail was, a bail was imposed, they couldn't make it. So they, you know, a lot of them are low bails, they just couldn't pay that $2,000 bail. So they sit in jail for months, maybe a year, and it's incredibly expensive, as you mm-hmm. can talk from a fiscal standpoint, but you're asked to ask yourself, why is that person there? Because they couldn't pay, not because they're a risk to society, but because they just couldn't pay. So our jails, and Tennessee's really no different than a lot of states, uh, are just um, debtors' prisons. Mm-hmm. And you have individuals who are there simply because they don't have the economic means. That is cruel. Um, it doesn't serve as justice at all it's um, incredibly expensive to the taxpayer but that's a secondary mm-hmm. issue but it also is detrimental to public safety mm-hmm. because you know we had a hockey player who you know beat up his girlfriend and he had fifty thousand dollars to make bail that night tell me is he a safety risk mm-hmm. I mean it, it's it we have to rethink about is are you are we, are we warehousing someone because they couldn't come up with money mm-hmm. that's so fundamentally wrong, mm-hmm. uh, whereas we should look at who's a risk. So I think that there, that's going to be a really big um, transition mm-hmm. to transition um, from bail mm-hmm. and means to a risk-based um pre-trial release. But that's something that we're going to be exploring in Tennessee. Kentucky's done a lot more. They're, they're decades ahead of a lot of other places, but a lot of states are really starting to do a lot of work on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I think it's one of the most important areas of reform that we need to be focusing on.
1: Well, certainly. I, I remember reading that the length of time people are sitting there, some of them are then losing their jobs And and it's it's the the effects of that, the implications of that. There's so many,
2: and we also see people pleading to things Mm -hmm. because they want to get out. Mm -hmm. So they might have a class E felony charge, um, and the prosecutor will come in and be like, "Hey, look, I can give give you a misdemeanor if you plead guilty today, Mm -hmm. Um, and 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 we'll let you out tomorrow morning," and they take it. And so, I mean, we, we really want to make sure that if you're putting, if you're taking someone's freedom away, mm-hmm. that you can really justify why you're doing it. And if someone is put in jail simply because they didn't have $1,000, mm-hmm. uh, we should all take some pause. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I want everybody to, to kind of weigh in on this, uh, if, if you have uh, thoughts to add. But um, this conversation um, usually closely comes into proximity with uh, the conversation about race. Uh, that's attempted to be had here uh, in this country. I want to just get thoughts on how this issue touches on the issue um, of race and how that conversation um, is being had, has been had. Um, Just make us aware of of how those two things uh, converge. Yeah,
0: I, I would say, Stephen, you know, if you look at the statistics of our criminal justice system, you will see um, such disparate impact on people of color um, at all stages of the system. We know, for example, that um, people of color are using and dealing drugs at roughly the same rates as um, uh, people who are white, uh, but they are getting arrested, incarcerated, in much harsher sentences um, than their counterparts. Uh, and so, you know... There, there's just no argument to be had that we have um, some sort of problem. I think um, the conversation that needs to continue and um, is, is a complex one mm-hmm. is why is that happening? Um, and I think people kind of tend to um, run to two camps of um, either racial bias or upstream issues, things like poverty. Uh, and I think it, it's really a mix of those complex factors. Uh, And, uh, you know, I I, I would say without hesitation that racial bias is a factor um, in why we have these disparate impacts in the justice system. Um, At the same time, I think that the criminal justice system and and changing the law and policy um, can only have so much effect on correcting that. Um, And we also have to look at um, these other complex factors to be able to correct um, some of those Racial disparities. Uh, And I think, you know, while we can use the law in those areas and we should whenever that's possible, um, we need the truth of the gospel. um, And we need to take some time to reflect on that, each of us, um, to look at our own racial bias um, and have that be what propels us towards um, reflection on ourselves um, and asking God for guidance and leading to greater unity both in the church and in our communities. Um, and leading and advancing justice.
2: I think, again, it just boils down to the human dignity of it. Mm. You have to look at every single individual, if you're a judge, if you're a prosecutor, as a human being, Mm. and you have to want them to succeed. You can't just have to want to punish them. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, and you have to be colorblind and you have to be objective. And it takes a lot of discipline to be objective sometimes if you've been in law enforcement for a long time. But, I mean, every single human being mm-hmm. that comes in front of you has to be a human being with value and dignity. And you have to want them to succeed. That should be a core tenet of, a, of someone in law enforcement. Um, and I think that we just need to get back there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, like what you said, and we could pass a lot of laws, and I'm still for that. That's what I do for a living. Um, I try to lobby for changes in policy, but it's really fundamentally yeah. an internal yeah. um, dialogue that we have to have with ourselves.
3: I said in the green room. I was just going to follow these ladies around just say amen to everything they said, <laughs> and this is a good place to just say amen. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with all that's said there. You know, one of the things that's, that's interesting to me is that there, there are some folks, so if, so if I'm thinking about how folks respond, uh, there are folks who go, it's only race and all about race. And there are folks who go, race ain't even a thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so they just divide up into those two camps and never the tween shall meet. And I do think there's something uh, important about holding together what my two sisters have said up here mm-hmm. together. There is something that's very important about recognizing that fundamentally... Every person you meet is made in the image and likeness of God, mm-hmm. is human, has the same aspirations, things of that sort, without regard to skin color. And at the same time, we have to realize that we live in a history and the narrative and a context mm-hmm. that actually has made skin color profoundly important mm-hmm. in how the law has treated various persons. Even at certain points in our history, how we even defined a citizen with regard to. Mm-hmm skin color and things of that sort. Mm-hmm. And even where we've had race-neutral policies, that doesn't mean all the effects have been uh, random or, yeah. or without bias. Yeah. Um, so even as we are affirming the basic humanity, imago-gay creation of people, we actually also have to interrogate the history that we have lived and inherited and to think carefully about unintended consequences, intended consequences, how those things vary along racial and ethnic lines and sometimes bring responses that are tailored to mm-hmm. those disparities mm-hmm. in order to make even deeper progress toward being the kind of human family that the, I think the Bible depicts mm-hmm. and seeing the kind of flourishing that we want for all, for all the people that God has made. Mm-hmm.
1: Amen. Amen uh we amen and up here as you can see and we'll be collecting an offering after the the uh but such an important conversation and it's multifaceted it's complex i would encourage you to look into the resources that prison fellowship right on crime uh has produced uh pastor t series of, of sermons even uh that that um that dovetail with the conversation we've been having uh can you join me in thanking our panel uh for the conversation
0: Thanks for listening to the ERLC Podcast. You can find more information about criminal justice reform at ERLC.com. And join us next week as we listen to a conversation about adoption and the heart of God.